This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, visiting instructor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and your host for this channel. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Kent Blancett. Dr. Blancett is Charles and Mary Caldwell Martin Professor of Western American History at the University of Nebraska-Omaha and has written several articles for American Indian Quarterly, Indian Country Today, and several other outlets. Today, we're talking about his fantastic new book, A Journey to Freedom, Richard Oakes, Alcatraz, and the Red Power Movement, which came out with Yale University Press in 2018 as part of their Henry Rowe Cloud series on American Indians and modernity. Kent, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by hearing first about you. Tell us about yourself, how you became interested in history, and your academic background. Great. Uh, so um, I come from uh, five tribes, uh, so Cherokee Creek, Choctaw, Shawnee, and Potawatomi. I'm a descendant through my father's side. I come from the family lines of Panther, Blanket, as well as the quintessential Indian name of Smith. And uh, of course, uh, out of that, I grew up in a very small town in, in the Ozarks, kind of close to the other four corners of Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Kansas, as I, I call it. And uh, growing up, I, my I first started thinking about being a historian uh, when I entered um, my undergraduate at the University of Missouri at Columbia, and I, I got involved in activism there. And we were working for um, about four years on the repatriation movement. The university there had about 3,000 remains of Native peoples that they kept for scientific study. Um, and part of our desire as a Native student organization was in the very early 90s after NAGPRA had passed uh, to get those uh, remains of our ancestors repatriated back to their tribes. So I got involved in activism, but I, I was just a big indigenous nerd as well, uh, <laughs> not just a heavy activist. And so I I found myself really in the e-stacks of the library. And part of that was is that um, – Growing up in a small Ozarkian town, um, we had literally two books on Native history in my high school, which was Custer Died for Your Sins. It came out in 1969 by the, one of the great Native intellectuals, Vine Deloria, and then another book on the Cherokee tragedy by, I believe it's uh, Wilkinson. And, you know, and I had read those books cover to cover, but I thought, you know, before I went to college, you know, this is before the days of internet, I thought these were the only really two books that existed on, on Native history. And when I got to college and I discovered the E-Stacks, I was just, you know, like in Willy Wonka, I had the golden ticket. And I couldn't get enough of the books. I just uh, started preparing my own kind of lectures. And I would stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning pulling books off the shelf, reading as much as I could get. And, 
you know, it was it was really uh, one of those things that I decided to go from pre-law pretty quick uh, to becoming a historian. Uh, and part of that is I didn't want um, no other student to, to go through this country without ever learning their, their history, especially Native history. Um, and that became a really another part of my activism was through the classroom. Uh, but through four years of fighting um, on repatriation, I began reading about Red Power and wanting to know more about what other Native leaders had done in the past. And, you know, it is at that point I started learning about, you know, Alcatraz, I started learning about Peltier, I started learning about BIA takeovers and the American Indian Movement and Wounded Knee in 73. And, uh, you know, out of all that reading and kind of learning about what the generation before us had done, I, I you know, came across Richard's name a time or two. And it, the information on him was always just rather, you know, brief, rather, you know, uh, Richard pretty much just kind of showed up. Uh, and then there was this takeover and he happened to be a student. And then he kind of drops out of history out, out of after Alcatraz. And we don't really hear much about his kind of before or after story. And that really stayed with me as a young native, you know, uh, intellectual who uh, was involved in activism. I just kind of always wanted to know more. And uh, when I did my uh, my master's degree at the University of New Mexico, um, I took a course by uh, Frank Saz, uh, who taught a biography seminar. And in that biography seminar, he went around the room and had everybody say, you know, you know, I want you to write about somebody you've always just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about. And it just was automatic for me. It was it was Richard Oakes. And um, so that kind of started this journey about 18 years ago. Um, and I started just trying to think of anything and everything and shake America to literally have uh, anything with Richard's name tied to it kind of fall out as a historian and try to use it uh, for this book. Um, and some of that had to do with collecting oral histories and going from coast to coast, from New York to California to going into Canada and Ganawage and um, McGill University and archives and special collections and um, you know, using newspaper documents and periodicals, uh, radio shows, television, um, in order to be able to piece together uh, Richard's life story. And, you know, early on, some people thought, you know, because he only lived uh, to be about 30 years old, that uh, this would be kind of an impossible story to write about. Like, you know, really, you know, how do you write a biography of a guy who only lives to be 30? And, um, you know, how do you make this significant? And how does this his narrative changed the the narrative of how we understand the 20th century and native history and or red power. And um, what I hoped is that uh, the final product of this book uh, does just that. It changes the narrative for us and how we understand uh, red power, but how we understand the, the importance of this movement of Alcatraz and uh, kind of creating the 20th century native ex experience and more importantly, the launching of uh, a civil rights slash human rights movement um, that, that really ushers in the era of self-determination uh, that, you know, really defined and gave opportunity to my generation. Yeah, and all that coast-to-coast uh, -coast research that you're describing, it's all there on the page because the story of, um, of Oaks's life is, is, pretty, is told pretty in-depth in the book, uh, at least I found it to be, certainly. So, uh, yeah, I was, that, that was impressive to me. Um, I want to ask a question that is actually not on the list of questions that, uh, that you and I had discussed beforehand, if that's all right, and that is about biography. And, um, you know, I've certainly never written a biography of someone myself, and I'm just curious what some of the challenges and some of the rewards are of writing biography as a genre. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no. Um, 
it, it was rather challenging because, like I was just saying, you know, Richard's life is so short, uh, but it's so dynamic. Um, one of the things I started doing is is uh, really trying to read other Native biographies, um, but there's very few that have been written by Native peoples or Native historians or scholars. Uh, so that was really instrumental for me to to try to jump into a narrative that oftentimes has been defined by some of the greats of uh, like John Neidhart to Angie DeBeau and others, you know, of Western history, but uh, really trying to insert in more of a native voice into that, into that genre. And what it came to me is to say, you know, I really wanted to focus this on telling a piece about not just an individual, but uh, uh, being able to not separate the individual from place and space. Um, and what that meant was, uh, being able to start this biography with with talking about a history of Aquasazne and Ganawage in order for people to understand um, the community that Richard Oakes was born into. And more importantly, using him then as a lens to examine how this community evolves over time, whether that's the Mohawk city of Brooklyn to the Indian cities of San Francisco and Seattle, um, Richard becomes a lens in which we can investigate the urban Indian experience, not just the Red Power movement, and see how you know place and space interact with Native politics in really unique ways. Uh, so, uh, biography for me was was kind of critical as as a episode of, of methodology and, and and theoretic, but it, this became more kind of a community biography as I moved into the project and, and got more in depth into it. And he became more of a lens to be able to examine some of these larger issues that uh, took me in different places and into different interpretations that were completely unexpected. And some of that was, um, you know, discovering. Uh, new ideas of thinking about Native history as intertribal histories, not just your strict tribal histories that have been done for so long, uh, which was, you know, sitting out in a graduate school or in a PhD program and thinking, well, I'm going to write the history of the Lakota people or I'm going to write the history of the Cherokee people. And, um, you know, that that was pretty standard. And we have, you know, as far as formulaic in, in the methodology of doing Native history, you know, for for some time now. And I really wanted to do a 20th century piece uh, that was looking at the core component of what does that intertribal space look like. And one way of getting at that intertribal space was being able to use a person's life um, to showcase that. Another part of that was the space itself and looking at the urban Indian experience um, through in the lens of the individual. Um, other than that, uh, between intertribalism and, and the Indian city, um, it was then to examine our politics in this uh, movement between native nationalism to to red power um, and what really defines uh, red power as a movement um, and uh, not in opposition to native nationalism but as a bridge an extension of native nationalism in the 20th century well let's talk about that definition for a bit because kind of getting into the book now your introduction contains several definitions and does a really excellent job I thought of explaining some really complicated ideas in very well and in very crisp clear language so can you give us a definition of red power as you describe it and define it in the book uh, that's a wonderful question and um, what I what I love about it is, is that um, looking back you know a lot of people have avoided trying to define red power as scholars um, uh, most people center on the great intellectual of Vine Deloria and his books in 1969 as far as Custer died for your sons and then there's a, a cast of red power literature that really starts 
emerging in the mid-1990s with Troy Johnson's book on the occupation of Alcatraz to then uh, Robert Warrior and Paul Chad Smith's, you know, Like a Hurricane. Um, and then in other vignette books like Peter Mathiasen's In the Spirit of Crazy Horse and others. And so Red Power was just kind of left on a cloud, so to speak. And uh, really nobody's kind of come in to reshape it. And I think we're far enough removed now um, that we're able to kind of, you know, investigate, you know, what is this kind of movement? And really what I began to find is that um, the movement itself had been typecasted a lot as being militant for one, uh, which it was absolutely not. It was a nonviolent movement. Uh, there was different pockets of, of, of this movement um, and its philosophical and ideological expression, whether that be the West Coast movement or the Minneapolis movement or the Denver movement or the Cleveland movement. Um, it was also tied to, to urban environments uh, explicitly. And it grew out of native nationalism, which was a movement to protect indigenous sovereignty um, as a very key term, um, going back, uh, a sovereignty that goes back and dates uh, prior to colonization. Um, and prior to even treaties. Um, and that nationalism informs Red Power, and Red Power became kind of this object um, in which Native peoples organize intertribally, and they bring that organization in, in a way to funnel and help and, and protect Native nationalism and Indigenous sovereignty and further those aims and means. And beyond just the political element of Red Power, Red Power becomes a field in and of itself in Native history. Um, in other words, it's like I tell my students with Buffy St. Marie, she always said, you know, um, I can do uh, what Vine, it takes Vine Deloria 300 pages to do, I can do in three minutes in a song and reach far more millions of people via the stage than Vine huh. could ever do in his book. So there's another extension of Red Power, which is the stage itself. It's the activists, it's the literature, um, it's the movies, it's the film. And that Red Power in and of itself uh, is worthy of its own field of study uh, within the canon of Native American uh, studies, let alone Native history or the American West. And so I'm really hopeful this is that um, by creating uh, these definitions, which are meant to be built upon, um, that it allows this field to kind of flourish a little bit more and that we can see these elements of urbanity and um, intertribalism informing a rather large movement of the extension of Native nationalism um, into the future um, of, this, you know, kind of, of these kinds of studies. Let's start talking about uh, Richard Oakes's life. Um, and as you've said in this interview and as you argue uh, in the book, place and space are critical um, to the story that you are telling. So can you tell us first, where is Akwesasne and what was that place like in the first half of the 20th century? Excellent. Yeah, no. Um, with Akwesasne, Richard always described it as, as kind of a, a place of about um, 3,000 people and 3,000 problems. Um, and it's an intriguing place because it's a borderlands community, um, which straddles the border between Canada and the United States. Um, not only does it straddle the border between Canada and the United States uh, in upper New York, uh, but it also is bisected by two provinces, uh, which is Quebec and Ontario, uh, that cuts it to on the Canadian side. Um, what Richard experienced uh, with politics at Aquasasne, they're highly charged between dealing with the Indian Act on the Canadian side, um, which was established in 1876, um, that gives at least a lot of uh, the jurisdiction to the prov provinces to then on the American side dealing with the IRA or um, dealing with at least uh, band councils as well and state governments and federal governments. 
what he was essentially pointing out is that it, it was it was a highly political place, um, oftentimes always in conflict and entrenched in the protection of the longhouse, um, and that the longhouse, um, as far as the governing structure for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, was something that was always uh, having its sovereignty infringed upon by these outside political forces. So Richard essentially was born into this highly charged political community that had always been organizing and had always been in an activist wing. Um, in other words, his activism just didn't start at Alcatraz. It started with his home community and in, in, the, in the voice of Mohawk nationalism and native nationalism. And we see this um, really in the development of Aquasasni in the trades of not only lacrosse and the making, manufacture of lacrosse sticks, which they eventually dominated the market. They made 90% of the world's lacrosse sticks there at, at Aquasasni. Um, and this was a, a business that was shared between men and women um, that was gender equal. Uh, men helped with the manufacturing of the stick itself. Women did the netting of the stick. And so this, there was a kind of balance and equity involved in this kind of traditional art form that was made into a world sport uh, that then became very profitable for the community. The other industry that we begin to see this kind of traditionalism um, within is the, the business of ironwork. And for Richard, um, what I had to do is, is showcase this by reaching out to the sister community of, of Ganawage, and, uh, which is another Mohawk community on the Canadian side that um, is uh, outside the city of Montreal. And they were one of the uh, first Mohawk communities to really get involved in the ironwork industry, but it was through timber frame construction and those bridges at the mid-19th century. Um, and part of this was that Montreal wanted to get you know product and export across the Lachine Rapids and the St. Lawrence Seaway. And those were some you know heavy rapids. I mean, uh, uh, at Ganawage, there was these uh, boat drivers that would take tourists down those as kind of like a, a modern-day roller coaster ride, if you will, or thrill-seeking ride. But they were highly dangerous, and it was hard to get product across. So Montreal essentially goes to Ganawage and says, let's build a bridge. Um, let's make it timber frame construction. We need to use Ganawage territory, Ganawage lands to do it. Do we have your permission? Well, the leaders there were ingenious, and they said, well, you know, you can have our permission, except you have to hire Ganawage Mohawks to build that bridge. And what they did is they ushered in a new era of job training and job skills uh, for Ganawage Mohawks. And as that industry shifted from timber frame construction, it eventually shifted into iron construction, and they, they brought in more iron workers from Aquasasne. And a, that iron worker force really uh, set itself up um, in the industry in Manhattan in that boom cycle at the beginning of the 20th century when Manhattan was growing by leaps and bounds, and they were building the Chrysler Building, Rockefeller Center, um, you know, Empire State Building. They were hiring Mohawk workers. I mean, Mohawks constituted eventually 15% of the iron working labor force in New York City that built that most famous skyline. And we don't see that, right? When we look at the Empire State Building, we don't see native in ingenuity. And I'm, I'm hoping with this book, people see it in a different way now. And they see, you know, that native ingenuity in the building and the construction of one of the world's most famous cities. Um, and Mohawks, you know, of course, were being told at the time that, you know, well, they're Indians. So, of course, we have supernatural or human abilities to be able to defy gravity or we have no sense of fear, you know, from our warrior past of, of walking 60 to 80 feet 
floors up without a harness. And that was simply not true. Um, and a lot of those Mohawk workers would say, yeah, we were, we were scared. People died in this industry. And because people died in this industry and because there was very little safety regulations kind of early on, it meant it was an open um, workforce that Mohawks could exploit and not face discrimination. I mean, they would take anybody that would be able to work 80 to 60 floors up at, at a time. And so that meant that this was kind of a workforce or occupation that had very little discrimination that they could take a commanding presence in. And they did. Um, and they found ways to be able to deal with that stress. They found ways in which to be able to kind of, um, you know, become uh, or have this become an integral part of not only their community, but also their economy. Um, as Mohawk City was being built in Brooklyn uh, by the turn of the 20th century, it started first out um, in Queens and then it would move, you know, by the turn of the 20s or 1920s more into Brooklyn. And then it really shot up by the 1940s and 50s uh, with the iron working trade. And Richard became a part of both of those communities between Aquasasne and Brooklyn. And, and it wasn't as though when Mohawks went to the city, they forgot to be Mohawk. Um, there was no sense of this melt, great melting pot kind of thing theory where, you know, uh, that we'd all been told by Schoolhouse Rock, which is, you know, you essentially go to the cities and and people lose their nationalism and they assume kind of a Irish-American identity or German-American identity. Well, we didn't lose our tribalism when we went to the cities. It it became reinforced and became nationalism. Um, And we see this in the case of of Paul Daibo, who's a Ganawage who goes to the city and um, he's being labeled as an illegal alien, you know, in the 1920s. And this is in the hysteria of nativism and, um, you know, the Origins Act and restricting of immigration and citizenship. And yet the, the Mohawk themselves have the Jay Treaty, um, and which allow them to go across the border um, freely. And so they, uh, Paul Dibo gets arrested. He gets deported back saying, you know, he can't be working in America um, as a Canadian. And he uses the Jay Treaty. Uh, they raise money and they become politically active. And eventually, Paul Dibo wins out. And Mohawks are allowed to come in from Canada to be able to work in the United States and, and to go across the border freely. Um, and it's a huge case. And the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee get together and they uh, seemingly challenge notions of what does it mean to be a citizen across border? And what does this issue look like to be an illegal alien and uh, yet at the same time be a First Nations person or indigenous to these lands? Um, they kind of point out the contradictions of U.S. immigration history um, in that sense. So um, so while they create this very vibrantly rich community, they also begin building institutions. They begin indigenizing the city and making it more Mohawk. Uh, one of the instances of that is, is they uh, go into Collier's Presbyterian Church. And, and I found that really intriguing when I was doing my research because uh, Dr. David Corey, who ran uh, Collier's Church, um, it was a Presbyterian church, but most Mohawks, Ganawagi and uh, at Aquasasne, they're, they're primarily Catholic. Uh, so it, for him to create an entirely Mohawk congregation at a Presbyterian church, I was like, how is this done? Uh, well, Corey was this kind of you know gregarious individual that goes and, and decides that he's going, he notices that the community surrounding him is largely filled with Mohawks and they're speaking a different language. Uh, and so he uh, starts studying the Mohawk language. He begins uh, getting a hymnal uh, translated into Mohawk and he begins holding services in the 
in the Mohawk language. And pretty soon what he begins to realize is that more and more Mohawks start going to the Presbyterian church, primarily because you can sing in Mohawk and you can hear the language being spoken in Mohawk. Um, So they indigenize a Presbyterian church um, in that process. There's there's bars that are then created, the Indian bars, which become another modicrum. And and what I began realizing is that, you know, the church, like Corey's church, the, the Indian bars like Spar Bar and Grill, Wigwam, which I'm happy to go into, these became institutions of a larger Indian city um, that gave Richard, as a young man growing up in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s, um, a highly charged um, identity as a Mohawk person. Um, That his Mohawk identity wasn't ripped apart because he was in Brooklyn. It was re-enhanced as he moved between Aquasasne and and, and Brooklyn. And Brooklyn became kind of a suburb uh, to the nation, so to speak, an outlet, if you will, uh, for a growing work industry. And those monies would be taken back and spent back at Aquasasne and for greater political autonomy, like I just mentioned with the uh, Paul Dibo case, um, the sense of extending indigenous rights, um, at least in America. So out of that, you know, Richard really had a, a strong political education as a young man going between Aquasasne, Brooklyn, and, and his uh, Ganawage relatives up north even. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Tell us more about uh, Richard's life as a child and as a teenager. Describe his world a bit. Where was he living and what were some of his formative experiences and encounters, both political and otherwise, as a young person that shaped him into the, the, the leader that he would become later on in his life? Yeah, no, his it's it was instrumental to me. I mean, um, one of the two things I wanted to, I, it took forever to track down a photo of of his parents uh, to put in the book, and so uh, the one that I really wanted that took forever was a photo of of Richard's mom, Irene Foot. Um, his mother was actually the most influential person in in his life, um, and part of this was is that um, Irene had married Arthur uh, Oaks, and Arthur Oaks happened to be a prize fighter. He fought um, in tournaments and was kind of a a lightweight uh, champion in in New York. He also would eventually uh, meet up with Irene, and they would marry. And Irene was from the Canadian side of the res, and Arthur was from the American side of the res. So kind of both sides of of that equation of Aquasasne. Irene had gone to residential school, unlike Arthur, uh, so she had that experience. And Richard, and or at least Leonard, when I interviewed Richard's brother, would always mention how she was very, you know, regimental, you know, on everything. Like if they were on the phone, uh, she would be timing their conversations on the phone to a T to make sure, you know, that they weren't spending too much money or weren't increasing the phone bill. Um, but everything had to be regimented. Um, she. Also had a hard time, and we find this a lot when we talk to that generation from that residential school area, it was, it was harder to express emotions. Um, when they were children sent to these residential schools and the, some of the traumas that they faced, 
It also meant that they had a hard time being able to show their emotions and give those emotions to their kids. And in some of the interviews I did with Leonard, that was that was the case um, with her mom. But it meant that they also completely loved her as well. And uh, she operated in a in a time period in which there was rampant discrimination. There was uh, for women, especially women of color. Uh, she. Um, after marrying Arthur Oakes, um, had lost a couple of of the children uh, early on, and she had Richard and Leonard. Um, and of course, Arthur was off, called off to war, uh, World War II. He was serving on uh, one of the ships during the D-Day um, invasion of Europe. Um, when he came back from the war, uh, they, they divorced. Uh, the it, the war completely changed their family like it did many American families. It wasn't the, the picture of the sailor bending over, you know, the young nurse in the middle of Times Square um, that most people experienced. It was a, quite a, a harrowing story. And at that time, you know, Irene, she didn't have much recourse or means to be able to support two children on her own. She had to put the kids in an orphanage. Um, so the kids went to an orphanage in Syracuse uh, for a number of years until Irene could get jobs and employment. And so she worked two jobs. She worked um, uh, at a, a tide factory and a, and a tool factory manufacturing. Um, and so this was a, t- a time period coming out of Rosie the Riveter, and when which women were gaining work even in um, you know the uh, wartime industries. And so she eventually was able to work herself into getting a house in uh, the North Park Slope area of Brooklyn. Uh, and after that, she was able to get the kids out of the orphanage, and she would raise them um, until about the time they were 16. Um, and it was until Richard was kind of in his teenage years that he first met his father. So the most important person in his life happened to be his mother. And and while they were in Brooklyn, of course, they played stickball just like all the other kids. They ran through, you know, different ethnic neighborhoods. There was gangs that they had to confront. And, you know, these weren't gangs by today's standards. You know, it was, you know, gangs were, you know, more or less like, you know, kids roughing up, you know, over turf and so on and so forth. You know, they could get violent, but, you know, not not the type they were today. Um, you know, and Richard had, at one point had gotten a jacket, a lacrosse jacket from one of his uncles up at Onondaga uh, from his mother's side of the family and was wearing this lacrosse jacket. And some kids in a gang thought this was another gang jacket and went after Richard. And, you know, what Leonard described was is that as kids, they also had to like mirror who they were. So like if they were in a rough area of an Italian neighborhood and kids kind of went after them, they would pretend to be Italian and, and be able to pass um, in order not to get roughed up. So they, they knew how to survive, you know, kind of even as kids. And, you know, they said it was it was rough, you know, in some neighborhoods when kids find out you're Indian, they really took after you. Um, but they also learned to defend themselves. Richard got into to lifting weights. They got into boxing. I think part of that was they heard stories about their dad being a boxer. So uh, there was this kind of idolization for the father that they didn't know growing up. Um, and that father that had been taken away and wanting to understand who he was. Uh, they got to know his, his father's uh, you know family, like his grandparents and stuff, when they would go back to Aquasasne. And, and I think there was a t- determination that 
really shown in Richard. And one of the early stories that, that Leonard told me about Richard was uh, they were um, kind of young and they were uh, over at Aquasazne visiting grandparents. And there was this island there um, kind of off of one of the rivers there at Aquasazne. And I was about a thousand, you know, or so yards to get, be able to get over to that, to that island. It was, it was kind of a far distance. And there was a guy in a rowboat that challenged Richard to a race as a young man, and he said, no, I, I can beat you in that rowboat. And he literally would, would make that swim to that island and beat the guy to the rowboat, and all the other kids at Aquasazne were, like, cheering him on. And it was this kind of <laughs> sign of leadership that was emerging in him where he was not ever going to be limited by the things around him. He was going to seek something bigger and, and better, but it, not just for himself, but to lift everybody else up. There was that kind of genuineness, that, that kind of quality in Indian country of, of returning the gift, um, that it's not just about lifting yourself up, it's about lifting your community up along with you. Um, and that's kind of a quality that would continue on. Um, and then there was a lot of myth to sort through. There was a, a story that um, was told of him that isn't actually true, but it's still interesting, of Iroquois leaders going from Aquasazne to Washington, D.C. to uh, speak to the president in the White House. And uh, Richard skipped school and stole away on a bus. And as the bus had pulled out from Aquasazne, he kind of jumped up at, from underneath one of the seats. And they, it was too late to be able to turn the bus around, so he became an early diplomat with these Iroquois leaders. So. <laughs> It was, as I say, he was he was being put into a certain place in Iroquois politics, even in the mythology evolved around his youth and upbringing um, between Brooklyn and Aquasazne. And I'd say, you know, he had a his first kind of uh, uh, test of of ironwork is he met up with his father for the first time, and Leonard and him uh, were being brought into the ironworking industry, and. Um, and it was hard, backbreaking work. They were made to carry around all the boards, the heavy boards that uh, the people used to go from beam to beam. And they had to move these boards around by the Derrick operator. And Leonard said, I got about two weeks in and I, my back was done. I, was, I wasn't going to do any more. But Richard, he, he kept on. He wanted to, to know their, their father a little bit more. So he, he dropped out of high school and he stayed with his dad and he started being a punk um, in, an, in an ironworking gang. And, and this is at the time when you're using hot rivets and he was a catcher on the line. Um, and so when I interviewed Dean Chavers, um, Chavers told me this story. And Dean Chavers, a Lumbee citizen and uh, had also been one of the uh, occupiers at Alcatraz and one of the coordinators. And Chavers said he saw Richard take his shirt off one day and he had all these scars on his chest. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you know. You know, what happened to you? Who, who did that to you? And he, Richard got a smile on his face. He's like, well, I was an iron worker and I was a catcher on the line. And what that meant was, is usually it was uh, these kind of were the fly boys of the iron working industry because uh, it took four people. You had one person that operated a bucket full of hot coals, another person um, who then uh, was in charge of getting those rivets heated up and then throwing them um, to another person on the line. And that person was a catcher. And that the catcher had a, a kind of cone-shaped tin cup they would catch these uh, red hot rivets in and then they would place them um, in the iron beams. And then you had another guy with a pneumatic hammer that would pound and taper that end in. And then as the, the bolts um, got ex- uh, cooled, they expanded and they filled in that joint on that iron beam. And they built these buildings, one rivet, one steel beam at a time. And Richard said, you know, you get up you know, 80 stories up and it's summertime, it's hot, you take your shirt off. And sometimes when those hot rivets come, they bounce off that can and they hit you and they, they sear you your skin. 
But for him, it was this kind of idea that he wore this as a badge of honor. It was, you know, like this made him a true Mohawk being a part of that industry um, and kind of wearing that not only as a badge of honor, but learning how to organize and learning how to, to operate, knowing how to delegate and being a part of this larger industry would affect his leadership well before Alcatraz ever happened. Um, he would moonlight too, going to some universities eventually. And, um, of course, his father and brother would continue on um, in working in the iron industry. One of the photos that I have of Richard's father in the book um, was of him being on the 110th floor of the World Trade Center. Um, Richard's dad actually was one of the main foremen that helped build the North Tower, and then Richard's brother, Leonard, was on the South Tower of the World Trade Center. So it's important to understand that Mohawks you know, have an integral foundation in building, you know, the World Trade Centers, um, and which was one of the larger buildings in New York City at the time. And uh, Richard, you know, soon started moonlighting to get back to him, and um, he uh, had a kind of falling out with his father during that time. He also was involved in a, in a marriage with a non-Native woman, um, in which the father, uh, in a kind of way, was uh, didn't want his daughter being married to an Indian. Um, and kind of prevented him from ever uh, going forward with with that marriage. Uh, and so he, at the same point in time, lost that marriage, uh, lost the chance to be a father, which was kind of a scar for him, I think, and being kind of estranged. And that estrangement happened because he was arrested. Uh, he, he broke the law. Um, and one of the interesting stories I always love to tell is he, he stole a meat truck in this kind of he was very young, and it was this kind of Robin Hood-like thing. Uh, he was there in Syracuse, and he saw this idling meat truck, and he got involved with this kind of gang and kind of ran with the wrong group of people. And they decided they would steal this meat truck, and they would drive it down to the reservation down at Onondaga, and they would start handing the meat out to the people, giving free meat away, free steaks, which who wouldn't want that? And uh, <laughs> so they get down to, to Onondaga, and, and Richard's in the back of the truck handing meat out to the people, and his friends are kind of in the front of the truck, and little does he know, the, the, the authorities show up, and his friends split, and Richard never saw them show up because he's too busy handing the meat out to the people for free, uh, so he's caught red-handed, and he's sent to Elmira Reformatory, um, and he's sent to jail, um, essentially as a juvie. Um, and he's got a record, and this is partly why um, the father of his first marriage prevents him from really uh, continuing on. And he kind of feels like his world falls apart a little bit. Um, he he loses uh, his grandparents. He kind of witnesses the death of one of his friends um, on the res, and uh, this death of one of his friends um, spawns one of the greatest stories that I heard when I was doing interviews. Uh, when I went back to Aquasasne, they have an ironworkers festival every uh, summer long in which there's like the spud wrench toss, uh, uh, which is using it kind of like a hatchet uh, that you kind of throw into a board and have it stick to a target. There's a, a rivet toss. Uh, there's trying to climb a steel beam as fast as you can all the way to the top um, while it's hanging or being suspended. Uh, so there's all these kind of skills tests. It's like Highland Games for ironworkers. Um, and every year this takes place on, at Aquasasne. And so I went back and I was interviewing ironworkers about their experiences and t getting them to tell me stories about Richard that they knew. 
And it, there was one popular story that, like, you got to put it in the book. It was the biggest fight in in all of Indian history in the sense of, like, fist fight on the reservation. And uh, it was between him and this local tough, Peter Burns, uh, which I was able to find a picture of Peter Burns and put in the book, uh, which was very unique. Uh, but Peter Burns was this, you know, bigger guy on the res who was kind of seen as kind of a bully by some. And, um, and Richard had basically experienced the death of one of his friends um, in this horrendous kind of traffic accident that it took place on the reservation. And as the cops came and they barricaded the road up, uh, Peter Burns was standing off with a crowd of people and he kind of was, you know, mouthing off to the police, like, clear it out of the road, you know, I need to get back home. And um, at this point, it, it, it sparked a fight between the two individuals, which they said, you know, on the res, um, the cops pretty much told him to go go off to um, the American side and leave them alone. And um, they were literally popping popcorn and watching this fight. It was like a fight that lasted three hours long. But it was about Richard standing up to the bully. It was about Richard defending the people. And he was a folk hero, even at the age of 16, uh, between all of these experiences. Um, experiences that defined him as a leader, the person that would take chances and opportunities, the person that would stand up to injustice. And these were the qualities that defined him. Um, and then about 1968 or so is when he decided he would leave New York. And uh, he took out all of his earnings and he bought himself a, a, a fabulous fire, fire engine red you know, Mustang um, convertible, and, uh, which Leonard was like, you have to mention the Mustang because he was very proud of that car. <laughs> um, and then he would take off and he would do this kind of Gandhi-esque like trip across the country. And he would start stopping off at native reservations and he would start learning about, you know, hey, what is what is relocation done, you know, in your community or what is, what is termination done, you know, and what are you guys doing to fight against terminate, getting your tribe terminated? And, um, you know, what's your tribal history? You know, what, what's your story? You know, what kind of Indian are you, you know, as they'd say, and this, this really sparked off kind of the first ever kind of indigenous studies course for him. He was learning about native history by living it, by experiencing it, by driving cross country, and where he was going was San Francisco, the, the city of love. But, you know, a, a place that, you know, is, is coined by hippies with beads and feathers and the time of the summer of the love and, you know, Janis Joplin and Grateful Dead and the beat generation of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. But this wasn't necessarily the city that Richard in, entered into. He entered into and found an Indian city in the heart of the Mission District that had been alive and, and going and thriving even in, in well into the 1920s. Um, and out of that, um, I wanted to tell that story as well. And, you know, Richard's path to get there in his childhood uh, was absolutely instrumental um, in the sense of determining the type of leader that he was about to become. Yeah, his personality really jumps off the page in the book, and he seems like he was a truly an electrifying guy to know. Um, and his his personality comes across really well in the narrative that you that you weave here. Um, I want to talk about that term that you just said, the term Indian city. Um, what do you mean by that specifically? Uh, it's it's a a, a, a a term that you you invented for the book, and it's a really useful one, but. Can you define it a bit and tell us how San Francisco fits into that rubric in the 1960s and 70s and beyond that as well? Yeah, no. Um, way I've been seeing things too is, um, you know, in, in doing urban histories, there's a long historiography of this. 
Um, you know, one of the first books actually was of, of urban Indian history was written by uh, Dr. David Corey. Same one at the Presbyterian Church will publish a book in the late 1940s called Between Worlds, um, which was uh, really sketchy, but was kind of laying out a little bit of, of, of what does it mean that Indians are in cities and you know, we've always been in cities, you know, going back to ancient times, you know, to, to uh, Chaco Canyon or even Cahokia, one of the world's largest cities, or Tenochtitlan. And so we've always been urban. Um, the, the thing about it was, is like even uh, thinking about those ancient cities, we, we tend to relegate that as, oh, well, that was just a particular tribe of, of Cahokia, right? When in actuality, that was a very intertribal space. It was made up of, of many different nations. It was very pluralistic societies that were in those large cities like Cahokia or Tenochtitlan, for example. And the thing about it is, is that if that's alive in, in, in our construct of understanding ancient native cities, why is it not uh, there when we think about you know, ideas of 20th century urbanity? And so intertribalism becomes a kind of a key component of how Native peoples begin organizing in the cities and building in institutions or forming institutions and organizations and businesses and bars. And those institutions then become a part of this city that we understand as Native peoples, but isn't the type of city that most people recognize, right, as being typical San Francisco, um, it's creating almost like a, a, a larger expanse of an ethnic neighborhood, um, if you will. And out of this, you know, a lot of the urban histories that have been written tend to focus on just one city, so which is was critical, such as James Legrand's um, uh, Indian Metropolis was a major influence on on me, you know, studying ur- the urban Indian experience. Don Fixco's book, uh, which gives a, a giant summary of, of a lot of the scholarship uh, that came bef- um, out of the 1960s and 70s when sociologists and anthropologists were studying uh, the urban Indian experience on a large scale. Or, you know, other books like Cole Thrush's Native Seattle um, and or uh, Nick Rosenthal's book on L.A. Um, these all tend to focus on one city. And what I wanted to do with this book is really do kind of uh, a look at multiple cities and, and what kinds of trends do we see coming out of these multiple cities. And what we see is that the cities are not something that is um, trying to assimilate necessarily or acculturate us as much as we're trying to flip the switch, so to speak, or flip the narrative and indigenize that city and use the city as a way for empowerment of our own constructs of native nationalism and red power. And out of that, we uh, create these institutions. And in San Francisco, uh, one of the first of those institutions is Warren's Bar, or Warren's Slaughterhouse Bar. And, and that happens to be the place where Richard actually gets his, uh, one of his first jobs. I mean, ironically, his first job is that of a truck driver, uh, which having that on his rap sheet didn't last very long. And then, <laughs> then he goes to Warren's Slaughterhouse Bar. And, and Dean Chavers described that bar as one of the worst, most grungiest bars in the history of bars. Um, it Literally, there's a bar fight happening there every night. Uh, the seats are literally bolted down to the ground. There's a garage door that flips out uh, to where they can hose it down at the end of the night. Uh, and, and so the, <laughs> they have to have a garage door because they don't want people being thrown through the, the windows and having to replace the windows every other night. So it was a rough bar. But it, it was a bar in which if you look at Russell Means' autobiography, Where White Men Fear to Tread, he said it was the first bar that he ever heard of the term, you know, termination. 
And that struck me as kind of interesting is that, you know, at a bar, it's not just about the socialization aspect of finding other Native peoples or the destructive element that alcohol sometimes plays within our community. But there's, there's also an organizing component here in which people are talking about politics. People are sharing their stories, sharing their histories. And it becomes kind of this idea of, of increasing the politic of the community and, and community building and community engaging um, that the bar became kind of a necessary cornerstone of where do you find employment. And the bar itself was located two storefronts down from the Indian Center. And Indian Center has really come about, you know, kind of that post-World War II period um, in which um, literally what they're doing is trying to rewrite the wrongs of a government policy started by the Bureau of Indian Affairs called the Relocation Program. Um, so it's not a, built through legislation, but it's built through um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And this relocation program was to at least send um, over 100,000 Native peoples to one of six cities, and one of those being San Francisco. And the whole idea of this, in which relocation was being managed by Dylan Meyer, um, and Dylan Meyer um, historically was in charge during World War II of the WRA, or the War Relocation Authority, for the internment of Japanese Americans. And then he shifts over to being Commissioner of Indian Affairs. And he you know, takes the big bright idea of internment and stretches it to relocating Native peoples off of reservations into cities in the hopes that that would assimilate us and that we would cease being tribal or we'd cease being Cherokee or Lakota or Navajo and we would assume an, an Indian American or American Native kind of identity. Um, and that just was kind of a process that was built into that um, system and it was voluntary. Um, over a hundred thousand Native peoples would participate, or one in seven. Uh, but oftentimes in that program, they would prescribe that you would be given housing, you would be given an allowance uh, to be able to get set up in that city for food and uh, for getting uh, furniture established, and you would be given a job. Uh, most of the jobs that people would find on uh, the BIA relocation program where you could be a cosmetologist if you're a woman um, or you could maybe go into auto mechanics school if you were if you're a guy but they were very unskilled labor kinds of jobs. Um, there was no job training as well or benefits to be able to further one's education. Um, there was um, the, the housing was oftentimes substandard. Uh, people wound up in, in what would be called the red ghetto. Um, and at this point in San Francisco, that would be the Mission District of San Francisco, which was largely uh, cosmopolitan in, in the sense of it uh, incorporating indigenous peoples from throughout the Western Hemisphere, from uh, Central and South America as well, um, and kind of a, 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 a uh, a place in which Native peoples were learning about um, experiences beyond just the contiguous borders of the United States and that indigeneity has a, a, a more of a global component. Um, some of that being also competition with this local Samoan community. Um, it became rather intense um, in those kinds of interactions um, with indigeneity in this time period. Um, but the bar became one of those uh, cornerstone institutions, Native organizations, Indian Center itself, uh, came in to um, essentially give people the opportunity to uh, pick up where the federal government failed with relocation. It would help them find jobs. It would help give them subsistence. It would help them also find a community. It would help them organize, maintain culture, maintain language, and eventually begin indigenizing the city. 
Um, and out of these institutions, another one would emerge in this period of the late 1960s, which was brand new, which was Native American studies. Um, oftentimes I have to tell my students, you know, we take for granted that we sometimes have Native studies courses at universities today, but the life shelf on that is only about 50 years. Um, it, it's still relatively young. It wasn't until 1969, 1970 that we really get the spark of the birth of those Native studies departments. And Richard Oakes had been working not only at Warren Slaughterhouse Bar, but he'd been taking his kids for tutoring um, at the Indian Center on the second floor. And the tutors for that program were coming out of San Francisco State College. And those tutors happened to be involved, at least in the Chicano activism and with the Mexican-American student organization there at um, San Francisco State College. And uh, they began recruiting Richard. They saw kind of his... um, uh, Uh, this very charismatic young Mohawk who had uh, ties in the community, knew how to organize, knew how to lead, um, had a presence at least of of recognition, being a bartender at Warren's. Uh, And so they kind of, you know, gravitated to Richard in that capacity. And in late 1960s, San Francisco State was caught up in one of the, one of the most largest historical college campus riots that we've ever seen. And and what happened was, is essentially the students began to question, you know, why is it that my classroom doesn't look like my community, right? Why, why am I not able to learn about black history or, or Asian history or Chicana history um, or even native history for that matter? And uh, they began to press for ethnic studies. And out of that, the students uh, walked off campus um, and eventually the faculty walked off campus as well. And this would bring San Francisco State to its knees. It would get Ronald Reagan involved, uh, who was then governor of California, who would be on the phone with S.I. Hayakawa, who would later become a state senator in California, uh, who was trying to put down the student unrest. He would hire in uh, local San Francisco police to come in and crack the skulls of the students. And uh, this would get the students to be referring to the police as pigs. And uh, there was tear gas canisters flowing around. And this was looking to be like a, an incredibly violent situation. Um, and of course, would come this violence would come to a head. And eventually, ethnic studies was created in 1969 at San Francisco State. And uh, the first person that they got to be the coordinator of Native Studies would be a young Richard Oakes, who was about 27 years old at this point, uh, to be the first coordinator of Native American Studies. Um, and it was during this um, institution or building of this institution um, at San Francisco State that uh, we eventually will get the springboard or launch pad for what will be the Alcatraz takeover. So the big thing was, too, is to situate red power within this Indian city and in that um, Alcatraz didn't just come out of the thin air of the fog of the bay, um, that uh, it was tied into a student movement. It was tied into a community movement. It was tied into a very vibrant Indian city. Um, and so being able to showcase that red power has urban roots um, it was really instrumental in that. And that these Indian cities become places in which we can begin to study and that these Indian cities have meaning within the native political fiber of organizing um, at least what are our modern uh, notions of native politics um, to this date. So uh, the Indian city became kind of that framework. And then uh, I eventually expanded that to 
uh, a look at Seattle uh, when later on Richard will go up there for the Fort Lawton takeovers. I wanted to be able to use Seattle as, an, as another kind of element beyond Brooklyn and the Mohawk City is the Indian city of San Fran and then uh, Seattle is kind of a, an urban Indian comparative so that we can see how these institutions are developed and, and how these cities have things uh, that parallel um, uh, one another, like the development of, of Indian bars, the development of Indian centers, the development of Native organizations uh, that politicize um, a community. And how these these various cities are also interconnected, too, that none of them really exist as an island unto themselves, but that people move around between them. There's a lot of mobility as well as one thing I noticed in the book uh, within this concept of the Indian city, too. Yes, yes. Um, let's get into the occupation of Alcatraz. And I kind of have two questions related to the occupation itself. Um, the first one, and you touched on this a little bit, but... Where does the idea for the occupation come from? Why Alcatraz? And then later on, when uh, Richard Oakes himself says that Alcatraz, and this is his quote, Alcatraz is not an island, it's an idea. What does he mean by that? So I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Why Alcatraz and what does Alcatraz mean? Uh, Great question. Uh, So uh, for Alcatraz, how it starts out is... Uh, well, there's a much older occupation that uh, takes place in 1964, which is important just for historical context, and that's coming from um, a group of Lakota uh, out of uh, San Francisco, uh, mainly Hank Means, uh, Richard McKenzie, um, and then a young Russell Means uh, decide that they're going to take over Alcatraz. And Alcatraz, as a federal prison, is abandoned in 1963 and, and made into uh, what will be surplus property. And during this period of time, there's lots of different proposals. You know, some people want to make it into a theme park. Uh, some people want to make it into a museum or cultural center or shopping area. Uh, well, at least uh, Lakota began uh, in San Francisco to organize and thinking, you know, critically about uh, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. And within that clause is uh, if the federal government abandons uh, property, more particularly a fort or a military base, um, that that property then would revert back over to the Lakota people. Um, And so they used the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 to then reclaim Alcatraz Island. And they go over in 1964. and, And it's an occupation that lasts only about one hour. And there's a key individual involved in that. And her name is Belva Cartier, and and she essentially um, does the legal framework uh, for that occupation. And despite it only lasting an hour, the critical thing about it was is that it, it attracted massive news media. It captured headlines around the country. Indians take over Alcatraz Island, the famed prison that housed Al Capone, the Birdman, so on and so forth. So uh, this captures national headlines, which is important. Belva Cartier does the legal framing. But when Richard takes over at Native American Studies, uh, the first person he hires as the community liaison for Native Studies is Belva Cartier. Uh, who did all the legal framing for that 1964 takeover. Um, Not only that, the students are highly organized and they're getting together with uh, students at Berkeley. And so it's really interesting because this leadership is uh, at least being sponsored in part by not only Richard Oakes, but Lenata Means, uh, who is Shoshone Bannock from Fort Hall uh, Reservation coming out of Idaho, who moved to San Francisco on relocation. She attended Berkeley along with several other students um, in 1969. They created or she took over an 
abandoned house um, at Berkeley and created an American Indian community house uh, for Native studies to flourish at Berkeley. Um, and of course, out of this, the Berkeley students and San Francisco State students hung out with one another. They knew each other through the Indian City um, there in the Mission District. And um, out of this, uh, it was, as I say, several circumstances kind of pushed the envelope um, on really thinking about Alcatraz. One of those was taking a course with uh, Dr. Jack Forbes, um, who is a Lenape or Renape um, citizen. And uh, Jack Forbes taught these courses at uh, the Far West Laboratory, which the students called the Far Out Labs. And he would bring in um, students from NIYC or the National Indian Youth Council, like Mel Thom, Clyde Warrior. And they would have rap sessions about Native liberation. They'd have rap sessions about what does it mean uh, to be independent as a Native person or how do we gain our freedom and what does that freedom kind of look like? And, and students began to really kind of center questions on sovereignty. How do we overturn destruction? to policies like relocation um, at the times or get them to work more effectively, at least for Native peoples? How do we overturn termination legislation, which was legislatively eradicating multiple Native nations? I think from 1953 to 1970, 109 Native nations were legislatively eradicated by Congress through termination. Um, And so they wanted to overturn this. They wanted to create kind of uh, a proactive uh, response that would also uh, change public opinion on on a national national scale. And this is where they kind of learned about the 64 occupation and stayed with them. And they began also thinking, well, let's, let's think about taking over Alcatraz Island again. They wanted to do it in the summertime. Um, and that would make sense for this being a student movement because students would be out of classes in the summertime. So uh, they wouldn't have to worry about getting expelled and they would have time to be able to set it up and stage it. But the timeline got pushed because uh, the Indian Center in San Francisco would burn down in October of 1969. Um, and this would really sponsor at least the Indian Center and the Indian community coming together to say, we really need to uh, draw attention not only to Native issues, but we need a new center to be built. Um, and one person in particular would kind of um, give an early release date of November to reporters uh, that was not Richard or Laneda. Um, and what Richard would do is they would just kind of roll with it. And that first occupation date was uh, to be in no- November um, uh, of 1969, November 14th, I believe it was, um, of 19, or November 9th, sorry, of 1969. And what the students did is they organized by the dock and they, they uh, used it as theater. And Alcatraz was to be kind of a theater occupation, like the like street theater that was happening all around them in the late 1960s, all through San Francisco. Um, use it as a way to get the press attention to start focusing on Native issues. So they get down um, at the docks. Uh, they were supposed to have a boat that would take them out to the island. They called all the reporters up, and this was in broad daylight. Uh, the, Richard reached out. He grabbed a proclamation. He began reading it. And the proclamation that was written by the community spoke to Alcatraz as being a symbol for Indian country. Um, it was an abandoned federal prison, much like the, the government had abandoned Native peoples in federal Indian policy. Um, the other side of it, too, is that uh, there was no running water. There was no electricity. Uh, there was no um, occupations. Um, in other words, no jobs. There was no mineral development. There was no future. Um, 
Alcatraz became a symbol for Indian country in the late 1960s, a way of being able to talk about the, the current situation in Indian country and use Alcatraz as a symbol, a metaphor for that. Um, and so they read a proclamation. Richard held out you know, some strips of cloth and some beads mimicking the purchase of Manhattan Island some 300 years ago, um, offering to purchase Alcatraz Island um, <laughs> at that point in time. And then the reporters were like, okay, well, that's great. Uh, where, where's the boat? Um, so they, <laughs> they, they scrambled around. They found this guy who was, had this th- triple-masted ship that looked like a pirate ship. It was actually a commissioned ship by the government of Canada uh, to celebrate James Cook uh, in his uh, voyage in, of discovery throughout the Pacific. I marked that within quotation, um, an exploration. Um, and his boat was called the Endeavor. So this was a um, mock ship of Captain James Cook, um, ship the Endeavor. It was called, renamed the Monte Cristo, and it had a guy in a kind of powder blue leisure suit with a frilly cravat, looked kind of like Austin Powers. Uh, and he essentially just said, yeah, you know, I'm flying the Canadian flag. I could use the publicity since you get all these reporters. I'll take you around the island, but I can't land on it. Um, so the students are like, well, this is as good as it's going to get. Let's get on board and let's go. Um, so Ronald Craig allows all the students, they come on board, about 80, 80 or so students. Um, he starts sail towards the island. He fires off the cannon to the reporters and everybody goes nuts. And, um, but it's not enough for Richard. Like I said, you know, that early on kind of leadership, uh, mimicking at least that kind of race against a boat uh, from his youth. He goes to the bow of the boat. He takes his shirt off. uh, He motions back to the crowd. Come on, let's go. Let's get it on. And he jumps into the frigid waters of the bay. Uh, which those waters differ about one degree in temperature year-round. Most people have to wear dry suits to keep from freezing and swimming. I mean, there's a reason there's a federal penitentiary built on Alcatraz, right? People aren't supposed to be swimming away from it, let alone to it. Um, And Richard decides to defy all of those constructs by jumping into the frigid bay waters, and he swims 250 yards, making it to the island, and the crowds erupt. Four other people follow him in. In other words, where the boat wouldn't take him, he would determine it himself. And this becomes kind of a point in which a lot of people in the past have pointed to this action as, as, uh, as an action that defines self-determination in Indian country, where policy wouldn't take us any further. We would take ourselves. We would take control. Um, we wouldn't allow anything else to, to limit us any longer. And out of this, uh, it's kind of a scouting mission. They go back later that night um, with one loaf of bread and a couple of sleeping bags. Fourteen of them will take over the island. And then um, they decide they were going to create a D-Day time. And that D-Day was going to be November 20th, 1969. And uh, Richard uses his gift for oratory. And he travels across uh, the state of California going to UCLA or San Jose State and other universities to speak to other indigenous students and native students to get them to to want to come and take over Alcatraz Island and um, on November 20th, they do just that. They use those two prior scouting missions uh, to launch a night attack on Alcatraz, and they land 89 students on November 20th and um, this amazing kind of landing uh, that defies the Coast Guard, defies the press, and uh, uh, captures the attention of the Nixon White House and makes uh, a, a major rippling effect in regards to indigenous rights thereafter. So his term that you gave me, Alcatraz is not an island, it's an idea, um, is one of the key uh, 
phrases that Richard will um, create within uh, the speeches that that he uses. And essentially what he means is that uh, what they do on Alcatraz was to kind of light a torch. It was to be um, kind of uh, to start a rippling effect throughout Indian country of of further occupations, the reclaiming of native lands, reclaiming of indigenous tree rights, the reclaiming of indigenous pride and, and multiple constructs and, and indigenous literatures and indigenous histories and uh, indigenous studies and uh, core co- classes, kind of a, a major renaissance era uh, throughout Indian country. And it did just that. There was hundreds of occupations that were triggered thereafter. There was uh, the takeover of Wrigley Field all the way to uh, in Chicago to uh, the takeover of Ellis Island, even in, in New York. So it went bi-coastal and hundreds of other kinds of like occupations. And, and that Alcatraz in and of itself was to become a symbol. Um, and others have tried to say, well, you know, red power occurred within IYC. And sure it did, uh, but it was a slogan. Um, Alcatraz became the symbol for red power. Alcatraz became the definition. It became the meaning for red power. And the rest of that was, you know, something that came down to to rhetoric, right? Um, and uh, years ago, when I was working with the American Indian Movement and repatriation, I remember talking with Dennis Banks and uh, we sat down and he said, you know, in those early years, you know, in the 1960s, we were all shouting sovereignty, you know, and it would get, it would get cheers. Anytime you said it, you know, as, a, as an activist and you're in a crowd and organizing, you said, you know, native sovereignty, people would cheer up and yay, you know, and it would get the crowd going. But he's like, you know, we really didn't know what it meant, right? Um, you know, but it, it, we knew it got a crowd going. It wasn't until later that we knew what it meant. Right? And so this became kind of a really interesting issue in which Alcatraz was was triggering something else. It was creating the definition that was needed to what red power is and that it was about launching another movement, uh, which was to reinforce native nationalism um, from intertribal organizing. And so uh, for Richard, Alcatraz is not an island. It's an idea. It meant that um, throughout the rest of Indian country, no matter what, if it's First Nations or if it's Central America or South America, the idea of Alcatraz was for indigenous people to begin liberating themselves, to begin channeling their new destiny and overturning destructive policies and to start a period of decolonization uh, that grips the Western Hemisphere. Um, And this is where the threat of Alcatraz resides as well, um, which is what we would see kind of in the second half of the book um, is moving into the implement, implementation of the idea. And the idea wasn't always pretty. There was, there was, it triggered a violence. It triggered um, a, um, a violence that uh, hit Richard Oakes uh, in the home uh, with the loss of his daughter on the island, in which uh, would precipitate him leaving by January of 1970. But while they were on the island, even before the loss of his daughter, they began uh, creating a newsletter. They created their own radio station. They were highly organized. They began doing repairs on the island. They wanted to create a new center uh, and a symbol in which people that uh, came into the West Coast would first see Indian land. Um, A museum and a university is what they also wanted to create. They began creating their own Indian city, an idyllic Indian city that was free and liberated um, on Alcatraz Island. And they created a Mecca. Over 10,000 Native people would make their way to Alcatraz Island uh, to be a part of this movement um, over a period of of 19 months that they would hold the island, uh, one of the longest occupations, at least in American Indian history, but in in kind of the 20th century uh, political sphere um, in the sense of occupations. 
And they triggered a movement that is still with us today that would inspire things like I Don't Know More, as well as the current, you know, um, in, in 2016, um, at least the stand at, at Standing Rock um, against uh, DAPL and the continuation of a pipeline underneath the sacred Missouri uh, River um, there at uh, Standing Rock Reservation. So out of that, yeah, one can see at least Richard was kind of prophetic. He had his finger on the pulse of Native uh, politics during the time and and that he was really um, at a cornerstone of, of creating a, and launching this kind of new movement as, as we know it today as Red Power. And that phrasing becomes central to understanding the definition and philosophy and ideology uh, behind uh, Red Power. Tell us, as we start to wrap up the book here, about the final years of Richard's life. And then kind of more broadly, and you touched on this a minute ago, but how you see his legacy and the legacy of the Alcatraz occupation more generally. Okay. Um, that's that's the big question. Um, <laughs> right. And I will, I will try my best to summarize. Um, after this, um, Richard gets involved at Fort Lawton. They take over an abandoned military fort. Um, Seattle, they construct an organization named after the organization on Alcatraz, and they call themselves United Indians of All Tribes. And I always have to remind my students, you know, with Alcatraz, that AIM was not involved in the Alcatraz takeover. And tons of people always give credit of Alcatraz to the American Indian movement. That is, is absolutely false. It was the Indians of All Tribes that occupied that as an organizational structure. So that, that idea spreads then to Fort Lawton, and it, they're successful. After three uh, attempts to take over Fort Lawton, eventually through Model Cities pro, uh, funding, uh, they're actually granted a portion of Fort Lawton, which today is the Daybreak Star Indian Center um, in Seattle. So Richard actually leaves Alcatraz. They have success. I mean, uh, Nixon administration by 1970 returns Taos Blue Lake uh, to Taos Pueblo. He also overturns uh, and ends um, termination uh, legislation. So he puts an end effectively to termination. He begins uh, pulling back on also relocation, which will end by 1972 officially. Uh, so what's interesting is, is that um, it – He's meeting multiple successes. And, of course, Alcatraz is caught by the national press, the international press. Reporters from Germany and Japan and, and China and from all around the world are talking about this movement of indigenous rights and what does it mean uh, for indigenous peoples and what is this term, red power? Um, and out of this, he begins to think about um, moving it to native liberation at uh, Pitt River. And Pitt River had about uh, 3.5 million acres of land in Northern California. Um, and this was unceded land. They never signed a, a treaty. They never ceded this over to the federal government. And over the years, multinational corporations like uh, Kimberly Clark Corporation or Pacific Gas and Electric, which has been in the news recently, um, PG&E Corporation moved in and and began taking valuable resources, constructing dams, hydroelectric facilities, taking resources off Pitt River land without any compensation to Pitt River Nation. Uh, the Indian Claims Commission uh, wanted to give them 47 cents an acre for that land. Uh, Pitt River denied it, like the Lakota denied ever uh, selling away their sacred Black Hills. It was the same for Pitt River Nation. Uh, so they began organizing with Richard Oaks and Indians of all tribes out at Alcatraz and that um, Indians of all tribes, you know, like that idea, moved beyond the island itself. Um, and they began taking over PG&E campgrounds and PG&E facilities and getting arrested. 
And when the cops came to arrest him, they were curious as to why all the Native peoples were laughing and why Richard would be smiling at getting arrested. And part of it was is that they needed to be charged with trespass. And Aubrey Grossman, who is one of the lawyers for the Alcatraz occupation, it kind of found this clause, which is to say that, you know, if you're arrested for trespass, you've got to prove that you have legal title to that land. And what he understood was is none of the corporations had legal title to that land. So as things got heated up, um, they also began, at least Richard tried to serve a citizen's arrest on the head of PG&E Corporation in downtown San Francisco. And in so doing, it drew kind of uh, unprecedented attention to this corporation. And also, it began to get stockholders a little bit weary. Like, would PG&E have to pay back, um, at least for resources that it had taken from Pitt River Nation, especially if this was eventually to decided in a court of law. Um, they were winning these cases too. Uh, there was a judge that found them not guilty of trespass because at least Pitt River maintained original title to that land and that was creating a court precedence. Out of this uh, kind of network, Richard had multiple attempts on his life. Um, in 1972, um, in September of that, um, would equate to the final attempt on his life. And, of course, he led multiple occupations, not only at Pitt River. He would lead occupations uh, to return Rattlesnake Island. Um, he would lead occupations with the L.M. Pomo uh, with, at Clear Lake and the takeover of, of lands. Um, he also uh, was advocating uh, the creation of toll roads uh, for roads that went through residential Reservation lands well before um, at least um, the president of the Navajo Nation would uh, put down a tree at, um, and try to create a toll road at, uh, through the Navajo Nation. Richard had done it um, in the 1970s by cutting down a tree and putting it across the lands at Kashaya, where his wife's family was from, as far as Kashaya Pomo, um, and tra- charging people uh, money to go pass through the reservation or pass through native lands. Um, so he, he was probably the most. Um, uh, iconic figure of the period. He was known nationally as a native leader, and he was making waves in Northern California. Well, in 1972, um, he would, in September, he would be shot and killed, um, assassinated, as I call it in the book, by a guy named Michael Oliver Morgan, um, who was a YMCA day camp director um, in a camp that was located not too far from Kashaya. Uh, Richard had been walking down Skag Springs Road. Um, he was going to go there to the Y to meet with um, an attorney from California Indian Legal Services to talk about the Y camp being a part of uh, Kashaya land or the original land base and having those lands returned back to Kashaya. Um, Michael Morgan would take a had, had two prior attempts. I, I have to kind of summarize it as quickly as possible. Two prior attempts on Richard Oak's life where he pulled out a gun. And each of those attempts, Richard would actually turn his back on Morgan. Um, and Richard had also suffered from paralysis. He had a, a debilitating beating that um, he had to basically uh, pull himself back to life from. Um, and so he kind of walked with a limp. He wasn't that fast um, at this point in time. And um, Morgan would take a loaded welder P-38 9mm gun, uh, basically a German Luger. Um, he would meet up with Richard on the road. Um, he would claim that Richard jumped out from behind a tree, attacked him with a knife, and in self-defense he had to shoot Richard Oakes. Uh, what we know from looking at the historical record and looking at a lot of the FBI files and, and like documents is that is simply untrue. Um, Michael Morgan would be arrested, initially charged with first-degree murder after killing Richard Oakes with a single shot. Um, 
Those charges within a period of one hour would be dropped to involuntary, voluntary manslaughter. And then eventually in 1973 in Northern California Court of Law, during the height of the Wounded Knee takeover, uh, Michael Oliver Morgan was found not guilty um, of, of killing Richard Oakes. Well, Richard's death would uh, lead other uh, native, uh, native leaders like Hank Adams, who was part of the Survival of American Indians Association and responsible for working on the Fissions movement throughout the Pacific Northwest. He would say, we need a march on Washington. And so he would begin organizing people in Denver, Colorado, uh, to stage this march on Washington in 1972. Um, and so he pulled together uh, members of the American Indian movement coming out of Minneapolis, members of the Indians of all tribes out of San Francisco, uh, members of United Indians of all tribes out of Seattle, and they started a caravan march on Washington, which would end up in the takeover of the BIA buildings in 1972. And most people don't realize is that that takeover was uh, coming out of uh, Richard Oak's assassination and the fury that people had, especially with this killer that was going to be found not guilty. Um, in which there needed to be a make a stand uh, for showcasing this kind of dual sense of justice for Indians in America. Um, out of this, um, we then come to the legacy. Um, and, you know, it took me a long time. I, I kind of write about this in the conclusion of the book. And, you know, part of that legacy was, is, you know, oftentimes the way scholars had written about Alcatraz is it was a failure, right? You know, the students, they were there for 19 months. Um, you know, it wasn't turned into a cultural center. It wasn't turned into a university. Um, even though their Big Rock school that they founded uh, would later be replicated in San Francisco, um, their coalition politic in which they worked with the uh, uh, Black Panthers as well as the Brown Berets and others uh, would see their activism replicated in the Brown Berets takeover of Catalina Island in Los Angeles, or even the Black Panther Party doing breakfast programs, um, at least for its use. The Black Panthers had worked security for Alcatraz. They created an element of coalition politics that is something that 60s scholars tend to sometimes miss in the, the equation of, of Alcatraz's greater meaning uh, to understanding the 1960s. But the casting of Alcatraz as a failure was something that I really took to task in this book. Um, and I end it um, in kind of looking at um, my experiences as a young Native uh, scholar and uh, coming to study Alcatraz. And I'd kind of seen all the pictures of uh, the graffiti, which is a misnomer. The, the veterans of the movement all tell you to, to say – you have to say it's a political statement. And I think that's really important. Um, so all throughout the island were painted slogans like, um, you know, uh, free or uh, on a shield or, um, you know, home of the free. Um, you know, people would paint their native nations in order to broadcast it, red power slogans. Um, and out of this, you know, I kind of studied some of those images and, you know, the mission district was big on creating political statements and, and community art that replicated elements of the politics of the community. So it kind of made sense that that would be a way to tag the island and draw attention to native politics. Um, but I didn't quite get it until I went to the island and it was prior to, I think, uh, 2001 that I, I went out there, um, kind of late 1990s, early 2000s. And I remember getting on the boat and, you know, you get on the boat, you can hear the sea, sea lions kind of squawking in the background. You can hear the seagulls over, over you. you can see the superstructure, the Golden Gate Bridge. And you're kind of going out there and you can kind of feel the waves hitting you and the sea spray hitting you in the face. And um, I remember going to the front of the boat because I was like, oh, I want to see where Richard prob probably would have jumped off, right? I want to see what he saw. 
Um, so I go to the front of the boat and I'm kind of getting excited and the boat kind of veers up and goes around, you know, Alcatraz and it goes to the dock. And it just literally um, gave me goosebumps when I saw it for the first time. But it was this sign that said, you know, Indians of all tribes or Indians welcome, right? And it was the first, as a native person, it was the first welcome sign I'd ever seen in my own homelands. And it spoke to me. It, it gave me that kind of message. It resonated with me. And that what Alcatraz became was sacred space, what Alcatraz became is this, this messenger. It became this, this place in which um, a movement started, a movement that's still speaking and educating people about indigenous rights. Because as I got off that boat and I had people putting their headphones in because they wanted to hear about the Birdman or they wanted to see Alcatraz's, or, or Alcatraz's most notorious criminal like Al Capone in his cell, uh, they wanted to see what I realized the toughest criminals in the world. I was there to see the toughest Indians in the world. And what they were getting along the way is an education about Native politics. Because the first thing the Park Service makes you do is gather underneath the Indians' welcome sign at Alcatraz Island. They begin to explain away the occupation of Alcatraz Island um, in 1969 and how it served as a cornerstone and foundation for the launching of an indigenous rights movement that it, uh, basically has taken over the Western Hemisphere and we're still uh, seeing the ramifications from. So the legacy of this movement um, is enormous, um, and it cannot be understated any longer or seen as a failure any longer. It has to be understood in, in new ways, and I hope um, that what this book does in the end is part of that legacy is it, it ignites a fire uh, for more Red Power scholarship, but also more scholarship on the urban Indian experience, more scholarship in the sense of Native biographies and getting out to the community and interviewing uh, people that live this history um, in this very dynamic and turbulent era, um, and that out of this we become, um, or we get a more richer experience of what it means to be uh, a contemporary uh, or a modern Indian in this um, time period uh, beyond just the 19th century uh, views or histories that we have out there. I know this book has not been out very long, but I always like to uh, wrap up my interviews on this channel by getting a preview of what the guest is working on next. So can you tell us if you have any other projects that you've begun since uh, this book has been released just last year? Yeah. Uh, so the second and third book, um, there's actually, I guess, three projects, which kind of happens when you ask scholars what they're doing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're always multi working on multiple projects. So I'm uh, working on an anthology right now called Indian Cities um, with uh, Kathleen Cahill, who's uh, from Penn State University, as well as Andrew Needham. Um, and that anthology uh, has a number of authors uh, that are in it that are exploring that greater issue of Indian cities um, in multiple different frames and networks, uh, going from uh, kind of the um, 18th century all the way up into the present. Um, and that is with the Clement Center and will uh, be with University of Oklahoma Press. Um, and I'm one of the editors of that. And then um, a second project that I'm doing is uh, a book on the Native American Rights Fund, um, which was uh, started in 1970 and came out of the California Indian Legal uh, Services. Um, and they wanted to create a kind of national office. And this kind of became our NAACP. And um, over 20 different cases uh, would eventually be tried 
try before the Supreme Court that has links to NARF as well as a lot of that self-determination legislation, um, like the 26 pieces of self-determination legislation uh, that uh, came out of um, the the launching of Alcatraz, but also the legal work of that uh, behind the scenes. So I kind of wanted to take a a legal approach and and look at uh, this really influential organization uh, and begin to write its history at the cusp of its own 50th anniversary. Um, And beyond that is another project which is to kind of open up Red Power and see it in, in multiple capacities. And that's uh, a book on Red Power and pop culture, in which I have chapters on Red Power and comics and uh, Red Power and film. Um, I start off with looking at Indian rodeo, um, going all the way from Jackson Sundown to the present um, and, and sport. So it's kind of picking up on Phil Deloria's Indians in Unexpected Places, uh, but uh, moving it to a, more of uh, 1945 and thereafter um, in these different vignettes and exploring how red power is not just confined to the politic, um, as Buffy St. Marie so demonstrated with her powerful quote I gave at the beginning, um, that it's something that even the stage um, has a presence with understanding what red power is and its ideology and philosophies. Um, and so I look at native rock and roll, uh, native theater as, as another kind of construct of, of red power. Um, so kind of the, the, I guess you could say the sequel of Richard Oakes is bound in those two, two books that I've been working on uh, simultaneously. And beyond that is um, uh, I've been executive director of the American Indian Digital History Project, uh, which is trying to get a lot of these underground newspapers like Aquasosny Notes and, um, and others like the original journals for the Society for American Indian. I've been trying to get those uh, digitized, and we launched a site in which is free and open access, trying to create that digital revolution so that our communities have access to these archival sources that we enjoy as historians. So people can find that at the American Indian Digital History Project. Um, and then beyond that is uh, to be involved in the 50th anniversary for the takeover. Um, November 20th, uh, 2019, uh, there will be a, a massive celebration in San Francisco Bay. So I created a, an, an exhibit called Not Your Indians Anymore um, that focuses on objects and ephemera and media uh, that came out of the Alcatraz occupation that's currently traveling around the country to build up steam and, and get people enticed and excited to go out to Alcatraz uh, to celebrate that 50th anniversary of the takeover um, in November. So just a few things on the plate. Yeah, you've, you've been a little busy, it sounds like, <laughs> lately. <laughs> Kent Blancett is the Charles and Mary Caldwell Martin Professor of Western American History at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. And his newest book is A Journey to Freedom, Richard Oakes, Alcatraz, and the Red Power Movement, which came out with Yale University Press in 2018. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Kent. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been fun, and I love having the opportunity to be able to talk about Richard or Alcatraz at any, any point. So thank you for the platform.